Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. When you go to the doctor for a checkup, and I don't know of anybody, if, if you're a medical professional here, no offense towards you, I don't know of anybody who just says, I just can't wait for my checkup. Um, uh, we, we, don't normally, we don't normally think that. It's like going to the dentist or doing something like that. Uh, we, we love our dentists. We love our doctors. We love our medical professionals. But um, it, it's, it's sometimes very nerve-wracking whenever you, you go for a checkup. And one of the reasons is there are a lot of questions that are asked. You get that battery of questions that are asked to determine where you are, what are your practices, what do you do on a daily basis that leads you toward health or may lead you in a direction away from your best possible health. And today what I'd like for us to do is something that may be a little bit painful, it may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'd like for us to just walk through very briefly just a a handful of questions so far as uh, your prayer life, to look at kind of a spiritual checkup with your prayer life. Now, I know some of you, when we start going through this, you might say, well, you're asking these questions to me. What about you? I've had to ask myself these questions uh, over this last week. I heard an old pastor say one time that if you sweat while you're preparing the sermon, then normally people will sweat whenever you are delivering the sermon. And so there's something to that, I believe. Uh, It's also true that if you don't sweat when you're preparing the sermon, you definitely will when you're delivering it. So, So you have to be careful with this, but just a few questions. First of all, do you spend meaningful time in prayer? Is your prayer life marked by meaningful time? Now, I know that there are some people who are very wise. There are other pastors who who would probably disagree with what I'm about to say. I I don't find anywhere in the Bible that it says you must pray for this amount of time specifically every day. Uh, I think that can lead to legalism. So you don't, you don't see that. I know some people say, well, well, Jesus was in the garden. He told his disciples, could you not pray with me just one hour? See, and that's what Jesus intends for us to pray one hour. Well, you, you, can't, you can't make that jump. That's why I would usually say, do you spend meaningful time? It's sort of like going and working out. Some people go and they may work out for an hour. Some people may work out for two hours. Some people, uh, if it's meaningful enough and, and they, they don't allow themselves as much rest in between sets, maybe even a half an hour. So the question is, is it meaningful time? Is it time that you are focused and you are directing your thoughts and your prayers toward God and doing so in a meaningful way? I'm reminded a few years ago, I was preaching in a church one Sunday morning and I was there to preach a kind of a mini revival and I was there and, and some people were meeting me before service and a gentleman walked up and some of you of a certain age remember this, whenever you would go to Sunday school, you would get a little badge. Do you remember this? And then for every, for, for perfect attendance after that, you would get a little bar that would hang down underneath that badge. Well, this just gentleman walks up to me and he's got a badge and he's got little bars that just run all the way down his lapel. 
and he walked up to me and he introduced himself and then he pushed that lapel kind of toward my face and started swinging his shoulder and the, the, all the little bars hanging down underneath that little badge were all swaying and swinging and he says look at that and I said oh and he said that's 16 years of perfect attendance I said wow he said 16 years of perfect attendance in Sunday school I said well that's that's incredible and he said yeah that means something and I said, absolutely. I said, listen, at our church, I said, we have small groups and, and we have uh, Sunday school classes. I said, we, we love discipleship. I said, so can I just ask you, what's the most meaningful thing that you've gotten out of 16 years in Sunday school? What's the most meaningful thing that God has done in your life? And he just stood there and looked at me. And he said, 16 years. And I said, I, I get that. I said, I'm just saying in 16 years though, Oh, tell me something that God's done. He said, I've been there 16 years. I said, I, I, we've established that. I'm saying, what in that 16 years has changed in your life? What have you learned about Sunday school? What would you tell somebody about why they need to be in Sunday school? He said, well, you get batches. And I said, well, that's great. And I walked away thinking, I think he may have missed the point, right? And Sunday school is great. Small groups are great. Okay, it's great time, but is it meaningful time? Is it transforming you? Is your prayer life meaningful time? Is it transforming you? Secondly, is your prayer life dynamic? What do we mean by dynamic? I mean, are you praying the same thing in the same way exactly at the same time every day just as something that you say? Or is it a dynamic, growing, deepening conversation with God himself? It's like the, the young guy that went off to college and started calling his parents every week. He called his mom every week, same time, same day, called his mom, and he would say this, I need more money, I need it bad, send my love to my sisters and dad, goodbye, and hang up. That's all he did. Now, we would say, well, that'd be ridiculous. You'd say, if I was that parent... I'd be telling my son, he needs to say something more than just, I need some more money, I need it bad, give my love to the sisters and dad, goodbye. But that's exactly what so often we do with God. We go before God, we say the same stuff, we pray for exactly the same stuff, and then we tag on a little, uh, thanks for this, thanks for that, amen, and then we're out of there. But is your prayer life dynamic? Is it a meaningful time, but is it dynamic? Next question for our spiritual checkup on prayer. How do you spend that prayer time? Now, I know some people use uh, the term uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S, and that's an acronym. Adoration, where we adore God, we give God praise. Confession, that's the C. Thanksgiving, that's the T. And then supplication, that is, we're asking for things. Sometimes people use the acronym PRAY, P-R-A-Y, where we P, praise God, R, we repent, A is where we ask, and then the Y is for yield. We surrender to God's leading and God's guidance. As we've been walking through this 21 days of prayer that we've been engaged in, if you've been reading the emails over the last few days, we're kind of in this confession mode. And we will be for a couple of more days. 
And I know it's a very uncomfortable thing. It was uncomfortable for me to, to actually write out some of those things. And, so, and I've, if you've noticed, uh, I'm taking those from Dr. Gregory Frizzell's book. That way nobody can accuse me of picking and choosing things and saying, well, you know, you're just making up stuff and you're directing it towards somebody. No, I'm just reading through it with everyone else. And I'm doing the daily prayer time that we're walking through. And as I'm reading through these things, God's been convicting me of things. And so is there a time of confession whenever you're praying or you're just skipping right to just the asking, just the supplication part? Is there a time of, of praising God? Is there a time of confessing before God? How do you spend that prayer time? And then the final thing, and that segues into what we're talking about today, when you, when you get to that point in your prayer, in that daily prayer time, when you're asking God, you're making requests to God. And I'm not asking you to write this down or actually verbalize it, but just think how many of those things are physical in nature and temporal in nature, uh, illness, uh, praying for illness, praying that people will get well, praying for job situations, praying for these. And how many of those things are spiritual in nature? Because I really don't believe that most of us have a problem with making our requests known to be made known to God about physical issues, about temporal issues. And those are good. We should pray for those. We pray for people to get better. We pray for job situations. We pray for family conflict. We, we pray for all of these things. We pray that God would show up and move and work in those situations. But I don't believe that for the most of us, for most of us, I don't believe that a lack of praying for physical things may be one of the areas that we need to look at. However, the idea of praying for spiritual things can sometimes seem very foreign to us. And we'll say something like, oh, well, I believe, you know, we pray that, that, that God will work and God will help these missionaries and, and God will save these people. Amen. Okay, but what are we praying spiritually for ourselves? And so today, as part of this continuation of this spiritual checkup, I want us to look at one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 1. Because you find that in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a beautiful prayer of Paul. And Paul is praying for some spiritual things that we should incorporate in our own prayer lives. Because we will see our own prayer lives enriched and we will see spiritual growth when we incorporate these things. Now again, am I saying we should not pray for temporal concerns? We should pray for those things. I'm not discounting those. I'm just saying... Most of us don't have a problem knowing how to pray about those things. We need to learn how to pray for spiritual things in addition to, as well as, those other things. So in Ephesians chapter 1, I just want us to look at this. Now, here's the, the context I want us to approach this with. The things that Paul prays for the people in the church at Ephesus are things they already have but they just don't know the full extent to which they already have them. These are things they already possess, and Paul prays that they will know what they already have. They will know what is in their possession. I heard a story one time about a professor who was uh, going around. He, was, he loved garage sales, 
And he went to a garage sale and he found this rock on a table outside this, this house where these people were having a garage sale. And he found this interesting looking rock. And he said, I'd, I'd like to buy that rock. How much? And they said, well, you know, we'll let you have it for a dollar. It's just a rock. So he takes the rock. He uses it as a doorstop at, there at the college for his office. And one day one of his buddies came in who worked in the geology department and came in and was talking to this other professor. And as he was walking out, his eyes fell upon this rock being used as a doorstop. And he said, hey, um, where would where, you get this? And he said, oh, I got it at a garage sale for a buck. Pretty cool doorstop, isn't it? He said, you mind if I take it and uh, take it back to the lab and just kind of look, look over this thing? He said, sure. He said, just bring it back because, you know, it's my doorstop. Turned out to be one of the world's largest uncut rubies. Sold for a buck at a garage sale and then being used as a doorstop in a guy's office. He didn't know what he had. He had incredible riches. He had an incredible thing there in his presence, but he didn't understand it. He didn't know. So in the same way, Paul takes certain spiritual blessings and certain spiritual treasures and he tells the church at Ephesus, I just want you to understand exactly what you have. So as Paul prays, so too we should pray. First of all, we should pray to know the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what Paul prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and here it is, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We need to know the hope of our calling. God has called us to a hope. And by the way, it starts out, it's the hope that is found in Christ alone. It's his hope. And he gives it to us. We find that's the pattern with all of these things. They belong to Christ first and then he gives them to us. So Paul prays and says, I want your eyes to be open. I want you to have the spirit of understanding, the spirit of knowledge, this understanding, this wisdom to know what God has already given to you, what's already in your possession. The ruby that you may be using as a doorstop, it's there. All you have to do is understand the fullness to which you've been given these things. So he prays that, that they would know the hope of their calling. We should pray that we would know the hope of our calling. Now, you've heard me define my working definition, at least, of hope numerous times. We say hope, what we're talking about is a confident and favorable expectation of a future reality. That's hope. It's a confident and favorable expectation of a future reality. It's not here yet. It hasn't occurred yet. It's not here in all of its splendor yet. It's a future reality, but we operate with a confident and favorable expectation. We know because God said so, we know it will come to pass. We know it will happen. We know it will be ultimately ours in all of its fullness. That's what we mean when we talk about the word hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, well, based on my best guess, no biblical hope there's no uncertainty with that it's confident it's favorable 
And that's the expectation of a future reality. And Paul says to the church at Ephesians, I am praying that you would know the hope of your calling. That Jesus called you to himself. And I pray that you would know that confident and favorable expectation of that reality to which he has called you. Notice that that call, his hope, that is an act of grace by God. That's what we find in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, which he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of his great mercy, because of his great love, because of his great grace, God has caused us to be born again, to be born anew to a living hope. Not a dead hope, not a past hope, no. But it's an act of grace that points us toward the incredible hope, the reality, that future reality that is found in Christ. And he prays, I pray that you know that. Why would he want them to know about this past act of God's grace in showing them and calling them and showing them that great grace by giving them that hope? Because when you understand these things, it's not just looking back at what God has done. It's an understanding that because of these spiritual realities, God has changed our identity. And not only has he changed our identity, he's changed the way because we're different people than we were. It changes the way that we live right now. Listen to 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because we've been given new life because of the grace of God, because we now have this hope, we recognize this is not it. And so therefore, in the here and now, we strive to live pure lives because he is pure and we know that one day we will face him. I've, I've heard people tell me from time to time, they'll say something like this. Well, if when I am with Jesus he is going to make me perfect, then it seems foolish for me to strive for purity right here, right now, because I'm never going to reach it right here, right now. And if I can't reach it right here, right now, I don't know why I need to be working on it right here, right now, because at the end of it all, God's going to change me and make me perfect. And he's going to make up all that lost ground. So why should I even bother? Well, there's a major problem with that because by saying that, what you're saying is, I don't see that there's any connection between the purity of my heart and the purity of my life and me being able to have perfect, more perfect union and communion with God. What you're saying is, I don't see that impurity actually impacts the way that I communicate with God or he communicates with me, but the Bible is clear. It does. Can I just tell you, I want to know God 
as well as I possibly can right here, right now. I want to be as close to him as possible right here, right now. I want, even though I know it's going to be a vast change, but what my heart cry is, my heart is that when that day comes, that transition is as seamless as it possibly can be. And I pray the same for all of us. That we know God so well here and now that whenever we meet him face to face, as glorious as it is, it's much less of a transition than it would be otherwise. God has changed our identity. Now we have a hope. And if we have that hope, we purify ourselves just as he himself is pure. And then look at Titus 2.13. Not only is it something, the the hope, not only does it speak to this God's act of grace, not only does it speak to this change of identity we have. But it speaks to this future perfection that is coming. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for our blessed hope. We're living in that expectation, but the day is going to come that we will see the fullness of that hope. It will be hope realized. And so we'll be there in his presence. We will be with him forever. And Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling? Maybe, maybe in your prayer time this week, maybe you just need to say, God, help me to understand the hope of my calling. Because if you understand the hope of your calling, can I, understand, can I tell you one thing that will happen? You will start to recognize that this world right here, right now, is not it. It's not the end game. Thank you, God, that this is not the end game. Thank you, Lord, that this is not as good as it's going to get. Because it's not that good, right? So whenever we go before God and we ask God to give us an understanding of the hope of our calling, it will will help us get a clearer view, a prioritized view on how to pray in the best way. So we should pray to know the hope of our calling. We should pray to know the riches of our inheritance, Look at verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, there's been debate over the years from theologians. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about his inheritance because he inherits us? Or is he talking about our inheritance in that we inherit him? Here would be my answer to that. Yes. Yes. Jesus gets us and we get Jesus. And all the way around, that's all right. So, but I want us to focus on the aspect of this, the inheritance that we're receiving from him. It is his inheritance that we receive. That's a mind-blowing thing in and of itself. That we receive the riches of the inheritance from him? How? Same way as we talk about the hope. It's an act of grace from God. Look at Colossians 1.12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified you. It's become official. If you are a follower of Christ, you have an inheritance in Christ. Not only is that inheritance in Christ, that inheritance is Christ. 
That inheritance is Christ. That inheritance is everything that Christ has short of being deity. We will not become gods ourselves. That is not what the Bible teaches. But we get all the riches of Jesus. All the blessings. We get them. Why? Because we are now in God's family. Think on that for a moment. You have been adopted into the family of God. You realize that there is a family of God spread throughout the world, through all generations, the church throughout all the generations, which means this. Listen, here's the reality. That means you have more in common of eternal importance with a person who is living half a world away somewhere in some foreign country in a foreign village who believes in Christ, who is a follower of Christ, you are brothers and sisters with that person and you have more in common with them that lasts for eternity than you do one of your own family members who does not know Christ. That's the reality. Oh, but wait, they're they're flesh and blood. I understand that. But flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom. What inherits the kingdom is to be a part of the body of Christ. Which means we have more in common with a fellow brother or sister in Christ who's on the other side of the world than we do somebody who's living in our own house who is without Christ. Because we've been adopted into the family. We have, we have, we have this inheritance that comes from being co-heirs with Jesus. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may may also be glorified with him. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We've been brought into the family of God. Some of you know, for about a decade, I taught in, a, I taught in different schools, but for, all, for a large portion of that, I taught in a school up in East Tennessee, and we had a very large international population at that school. At one point in time, there were 19 different countries represented among the faculty, staff, and student body there at the school. Uh, we always said that uh, in this case, the nations have come to us. And so we were able to share Christ and many of them received Christ and went back to their home countries and let people know about Jesus and the hope that's found in him. And I remember there was uh, a young man who came to one of my classes and I was talking to him and uh, a little while later, one of the dorm deans came over to me and she said, did you meet uh, Rene? What was his name? Did you meet Rene? And uh, spelled in that French way. Um, and I said, yes. And he was from this country in Africa. And she said, did you know that his dad is the king of that country? And I said, okay. And she said, no, get this. We are teaching a crown prince. And I said, God is my father. Jesus is my brother. It ain't no big deal for me to teach a human prince. I mean, he still got to do homework, right? I mean, that's just it. And she said, well, you just have to go ahead and ruin everything, don't you? I said, no, I'm just saying the reality of it is we are part of a royal family that is eternal. And that's not cause to boast and swagger and look down on anybody. No, it's an act of grace, but it's changed our identity. And because of that, we can say, God, I want to know what are the riches of the inheritance in the saints. I want to know what are the riches of the inheritance of being a part of the royal family 
of heaven. That's what he says. And we look forward to an ultimate perfection because if you have an inheritance, one day you're gonna, it's going to be made good on and you're going to receive everything that's coming to you because of that inheritance. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just looked at this verse. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's not like earthly treasure that's going to fade away. It's not like earthly treasure that's subject to all sorts of, all sorts of uh, political winds and inflation and all sorts of other stuff. No, he says this, this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. You're go- it's going to come and it is perfection and it is on its way. And if you understand that that's what's waiting, then you understand that in Christ we've been given all things. Yeah, but I'm still struggling with this area. I'm still struggling with that area. I understand that. But guess what? Those areas won't always be there. The day will come that we will receive the perfect inheritance that's coming from God. And whenever we receive that, we will understand the fullness of what it means to be children of God, adopted into his family. So whenever we pray, We not only pray that we will understand the hope of our calling, we want to pray that we would know the riches of his inheritance. And then finally, there's one more thing he says that he wants them to know. The greatness of the power toward us. Look at verse 19. He prays that they would know, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He prays that they would know the greatness of the power. We should pray that we wouldn't understand and we would know the greatness of God's power toward us. That's what he says here. It's the greatness of his power toward us. And then Paul says, this is what that power is. It's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. On that resurrection Sunday, the power that worked that gave life to the dead body of Jesus and gave him this glorified existence, this power from God that literally caused the heartbeat of Jesus to begin again. That caused all the brain activity of Jesus to start again. That also transformed him into a glorious being. That same power is the power that is at work in us today. And that's the same power that we can pray to God and call out that God would show and reveal in our lives. Francis Chan, a writer, wrote Crazy Love and a number of other books. 
I remember an illustration he gave one time. He says, if, if you were a basketball player and you told someone, listen, there is a supernatural being inside of me that enables me to play basketball. You would expect, and people would expect when you hit the court, something would be different about the way you played basketball. If you said there's a supernatural being inside of you enabling you to play basketball, people would expect something to be different. If we say, according to scripture, that the Holy Spirit is living within us as Christians, and he is, and empowering us to live for him, then whenever we hit the court of life, there should be something about the way we live that is remarkably different if a supernatural God is living within us, enabling us to live that life. We should pray that we would know what is this power that is toward us. How did we receive this power? Same way we've talked about the hope and same way that we, we've talked about how God is, is working in us and giving us those riches or has given us the riches of his inheritance. It's by his grace. Look at Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We were raised from spiritual death ourselves. And we were given life. How? By the power of God. God is the one who does that. God is the one who does the work. God is the one who raises us. He raised you. If you're a follower of Christ, you were spiritually dead. Not spiritually sick. Not spiritually a little bit. Not well off. Not not spiritually limping a little bit. No, we were spiritually dead. And God gave us spiritual life through Jesus because of his grace. Whenever we trust in him, whenever we cast ourselves upon his mercy, when we say, I recognize the fact that I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you, God. And God, I don't, I don't want to be separated from you. God, I, I want Christ. I want a life with you. And it's only through Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, his resurrection, that God works that power through the same power that works in us. Not only to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life, but it's the same power that's still at work in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life, but it's also the same power that enables us to live day by day in that reality. He doesn't just say, well, now you're saved. You have no need for any more power. No, we, we do. We need that power. We need that power to live for him. We need that power to make him known. Listen to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus says. You, you stay in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. Your identity has changed. Now you're ambassadors. Now you're going to go out and you're going to make me known. Where? All throughout the world. You will be my witnesses. Literally, that word that's used for witnesses is the word from which we get our word martyr. And they were. They were witnesses. They made Christ known. And many of them died as martyrs or suffered in the least as martyrs because of it. God wants us to know the power that we've been given. A, A favorite verse about this, and we're about to close down. Just hold with me. Ephesians 3.20. Also in the book of Ephesians. There's another prayer of Paul later on in the book of Ephesians. But he ends with this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power 
at work within us. New King James says, uh, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. The idea is there's the, there's the boundary and God goes beyond that. But not just beyond that, he goes beyond the beyond. And then he goes beyond the beyond and then past that even more. Paul just stacks words atop each other to try to convey to the church at Ephesus just how incredible this power is. He's already mentioned back in Ephesians chapter 1 that it is immeasurable, this immeasurable power that he has been showing us, the immeasurable greatness. You realize that power is at work in you? If you truly believed, if I truly believed that God's power in me is exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask, all that I can pray, and all that I can think, I want to know. I want to know that power. I want to know it more clearly. I want to pray to God and say, God, show me the power that that, that you've already given me. So many times we live and we live what we feel are powerless lives. If you're a child of God, you're not living a powerless life. You have a life of power. You have power that is accessible, but we need to understand the full extent to which we have that power. That the same power at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that gave us spiritual life. You know a question I ask myself a lot of times? I'll just ask myself, given a given situation, I'll just ask, if I were thinking like and living like a being who has been given this power, who is going to live for all eternity, would I really be in such turmoil over this little thing that has happened? No, I wouldn't. If I backed up and said, okay, God, you, you've given me a new life in Christ. I'm going to live for eternity because eternal life begins the moment you come to Christ. Not the moment you die. Eternal life begins for you the moment you come to Christ. That's when you receive eternal life. You change addresses when you die. You just don't get eternal life when you die. You already have it. So we've been given eternal life. But I'm thinking if I live, if I really understood that I was an eternal being who's going to live forever with God and he has given me the same power that work in me that raised Jesus from the dead, would I be so stirred up over this particular situation or circumstance? No, I would not. And can I let you in on a secret? Neither would you. Because if we understand the things that God has already given to us. It's so that we can navigate this life, this world right now with wisdom and also understand that this is not the end of it. There is more to come. There is better to come. There was a famous story about a uh, woman that was nearing the end of her life. She called her pastor in. And she was going over the final plans, the plans for her funeral and what songs and who she wanted to speak. And at the very end of their conversation, as he's making notes, she said, and I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. Thinking that she was maybe advancing in her confusion he very politely said, oh, a fork. Hmm. 
And he did like many pastors do. Well, tell me more about that. When in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I don't know where we're about to go. Tell me more about this. She said, listen, one of my favorite parts of a church potluck was when we were all sitting around and you would be eating and someone would come by and lady they're taking up the plates and they would look at you and they would say, keep your fork. Because the understood thing was there's dessert that's coming and you're going to need a fork for it. You don't need your spoon. It's not like pudding or something, she said. She said, you need a fork because it's something of substance. It's something that's going to stay with you. It's something good that is to come. And I always got excited when somebody told me, just keep your fork. She said, so I want to be buried with a fork. So that whenever people walk by and look down at me and pay their respects, there in my hands, there's a fork. And when they ask, why is she buried with a fork? I want you to be able to look at them and say, because there is something better to come. There is something with substance that is to come. There is something that is coming that is good and it is rich and it has weight and it is solid and it is something that you're going to wish you had a fork for. Listen, Paul, Paul writes the church at Ephesus and tells them, y'all, you're going to need a fork. Not just then, but you need a fork right now. To understand the riches and the greatness and the goodness and the glory and the solidity and the substance of what you've already been given. So we should pray that we would understand what's the hope of our calling and our calling comes from him. What are the riches of our inheritance that we are his children and that we are going to receive the fullness of that one day. And then this power that is working in us, his power toward us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is still raising people from the dead, still giving people spiritual life who are dead in their sins and their trespasses. How? Because of the grace of God, through the sacrifice of God, through trusting in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and throwing ourselves upon his mercy. And then what can we expect? We can expect the ultimate fulfillment of that hope, that confident and favorable expectation of that future reality. We're going to one day see that future reality. And it won't be a future reality. It'll be a present reality and an eternal reality that we're living in that place, living in the presence of God, enjoying the fullness of his riches. And we got there by his power that raised us from the dead. Those are the things that Paul says we should be praying to know all those other temporal things. They're important. And we should pray for those. But pray that we would have a clear view of what we've already been given in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the glorious gifts that you've given us. Father, there may be people here, maybe people watching, listening later even who would say, I've never made that decision to follow Christ. I've never, I've never received that, that grace. I've, I've just never received it. It's been offered. I've just never received it. Father, I pray today would be the day that they would say yes, that they would, they would turn from their sin. They would turn toward Christ alone. Recognizing 
that all the hope, all the riches, all the power is found in him. We cannot do it ourselves. We can't bridge that gap ourselves by our own power, by our own wisdom, by our own possessions. There's no way. But you provided a means by which we can know you through Jesus. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can be saved. Father, I pray today would be the day that some would say, I want Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to turn from my sins. I want to trust in Jesus for my salvation. So that I may know what is that hope. So that I may know what are the riches of his glory and of his inheritance. So I may know that power that is working in me. That power that is exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask. All that I can imagine. Father, I pray for those here. Those followers of Christ who are here. Who, who have been praying and diligently searching and seeking your face, seeking your presence. And Father, I pray that we would be diligent to, to ask you to pray that we, we might know the riches, the depth of the spiritual blessings that you have given us in Christ. May those transform us more and more into his likeness so that we'll be more like Jesus and less like who we once were. Father, we're thankful for new life in Christ. We're thankful for the inheritance that is found by being a part of your family. We give you thanks that we're looking forward to a blessed hope that will be revealed when Jesus returns. And as of now, we wait and we wait expectantly and confidently for that day. So Father, I pray that if any of our prayers need to be deepened, furthered, because we recognize that there is better things to come. I pray that you would do that work in each one of us so that we might know you better here and now and walk with you more closely here and now so that when that day comes that we are called home to be with you, that that transition will be as smooth as it possibly can be as we leave this place and enter into your blessed presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.